Dan, how was it for you to get your first job as a, a script reader? And if you can, paint a little bit about your life at that time. Uh, well, I'd gotten out of NYU film, and uh, I definitely was interested in screenwriting. That was kind of my focus um, coming out of film school. And I really wanted to get into script reading, and I had been interning at the Tribeca Film Center in New York uh, for a company that was co-owned by Robert De Niro's production company. And in the same building was Miramax Films, and so I, um, I just kind of got to know some people there. And it was funny, my first reading job for them, it was their genre division called Dimension Films. And I remember calling up the supervisor there, or no, I'm sorry, I remember getting a referral to them, but the guy said, they're not hiring now, don't bother calling them. And because I was, you know, I, I had a lot of initiative, I called anyway. And the first thing the supervisor told me when he picked up the phone was, oh, we have a reader job open. Do you want to test for it? And so I did a test uh, coverage, which is they give you a script that they've already had coverage on. And so I did coverage on it. So then they evaluate, they evaluate you on that coverage because they already know the script really well. And so that's how I got working for them. And then I transferred over to the Miramax division, which was their parent company. And I had, I had also been freelancing for a number of other companies um, in New York City, other production companies and studios. So when you came to New York to go to NYU, um, do you remember like some of the scripts in your mind that you thought, this is the sort of the genre I want to write in, this is what I want to create? Well, I'd been, it was funny because the, growing up I was really kind of more into, um, I guess like Spielberg stuff or kind of more action stuff like Rambo and that kind of stuff. But then before I went to NYU, I transferred in as a junior, um, I'd started getting into Scorsese and I was watching, you know, Taxi Driver and that kind of stuff and Goodfellas and Oliver Stone. Um, and I knew that Scorsese and Oliver Stone and Spike Lee had gone to NYU. So I really wanted to go there. So I applied and I got in uh, just on the wait list. And then they had called really late um, in the summer uh, before my junior year and said, we have an opening on the wait list. So that's why I went to NYU. Um, that's how I was able to get in. And it was just really cool to be in New York where these filmmakers that I really admired um, had gone, you know. Um, so yeah, Scorsese, Oliver Stone, Spike Lee, the Coen brothers, and these were all filmmakers that I really, um, you know, wanted to emulate. So uh, going back to what your jobs were, or what your tasks were, so you finally get in. Here you were told, sorry, don't even bother. You give it a shot anyway. Mm -hmm. It turns out, as luck would have it, they do have a slot. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what your first few weeks were as the script reader? And Well, I remember because I, um, I got scripts and books because I was in New York and that was the literary capital. So I would read a lot of books. Uh, ahead of publication. They, the, the agents and um, book editors would send a book out to the studios to see if uh, any studios or production companies wanted to option the movie rights. And so I would be the first reader at the production company or studio to read that unpublished galley version. And that was hard to do because a lot of times they would literally give you a 600-page book to read overnight and wow. you had to write up a three to five page report about it 
by you know noon the next day um, and that was hard to do I actually got uh, I got let go from one of my jobs early on because I just I just couldn't turn over the material that fast and so I had to kind of uh, learn on the job trial by fire and just learn to read really fast and to intuit that structure that movie structure and as i'm reading this book i'm asking myself will this transfer over to a movie you know does it have that potential for that three four act structure that 95 percent of great movies use and so it was all about structure there wasn't also dialogue things or I'm well just yeah no it was it was evaluating the whole thing. As a reader, I was evaluating the whole script, structure, dialogue, you know, character development, all that stuff. Um, but if you're reading something like a novel or a graphic novel, or even like a, um, a piece from the New Yorker or Rolling Stone, or um, you know, any kind of article that they're interested in making a movie of, you have to evaluate it as a potential movie. So you're asking yourself does it have the three or four act structure of a commercial film so that's interesting so it sounds actually fairly intimidating because I, I know i've been in situations like that where no one really tells you what the rules are you mm -hmm. kind of have to as you said into it or mm -hmm. watch other people so how was that were, were people actually giving you tips on how to do all that or no you kind of had to it was every man for himself not a whole lot you didn't get a whole <laughs> lot of feedback when i was first starting out maybe a few supervisors might have given me a few little tips about coverage but after a while they don't really give you any feedback you don't even know where this script goes after you send in your coverage report so um, i would really have to ask afterward like hey that um that script that I really loved, did anything happen with it? And so they might tell me, oh, um, we didn't buy it, but Fox bought it or something like that. But as a reader, you, you're not told anything. <laughs> so you have to inquire, you have to have the initiative to see what happens after that. And you're not a part of the process of development or purchasing it or bidding on it or anything like that. After you read it once, maybe twice, it's out of your hands and then your supervisors, the coordinators, the execs, the VPs, they're the ones who are going to be deciding whether the company is going to option it or not. And that's fascinating. I wonder, were there certain scripts that you would read just the first 10 pages of and you just knew right away this was not going to go anywhere? And if yeah. so, why? I mean, as crazy as it sounds, it could be the first paragraph. It could be the first line. I mean, if there's two typos in the first line, like it's probably not gonna go anywhere, you know? Um, it's very rare, incredibly rare, that the first 10, 20, 30 pages will be weak and then the script gets a whole lot better later, you know? Um, if a writer doesn't know how to write a great act one, they're not gonna learn later or suddenly turn it around and have a great act 2A or act 2B. I find this fascinating. So I was just curious, did you have a cubicle, like your own desk to really like digest this? No, it was reading at home. Um, a reader is a totally freelance job. So at the time, I mean, this really dates me, a lot of the work was actually in print. So I would, um, go to the company that I was working for, they would give me a script or two or a stack or a book, print it on paper, I would go home, I would write up the coverage report, and then uh, I would actually 
really early on, I would put it on a disc, on a floppy disc, I would save it, and then I would come back in and give them the floppy disk and they would put it on their computer into the server so that the execs and president of the company and stuff could access it, you know. Um, but yeah, I was actually reading on paper. Now they obviously just email a PDF and then it's up to the reader who works at home whether they want to print it out and read it on paper or they want to read it on their computer or tablet or whatever. And what would you say was the average amount of um, you know, coverage that you were reading in a 24-hour period for one thing? Like you said 600 pages for a book, but that sounds like that maybe was excessive? It was, yeah. I, when I was a reader, it, I was in New York City, so I didn't read a ton of scripts at once. Like readers in LA um, will come in and pick up, or not pick up these days, but they'll get five or six scripts at once and they'll have two or three days, maybe four, to turn them around. Okay, so they have to read all these scripts, write coverage reports, and send them back in to their employer, whether it's an agency or a production company or a studio. In my case, I never read that high of a volume, but let's say um, usually the turnaround was two days. So I'd get a script, whether I got a script or two or three, let's say I got them on Monday, they would be due by Wednesday. But what was challenging and good because it paid more money was the overnight jobs. So if they needed something overnight, I, it would be tougher because I would get less sleep that night and I would really have to blast this thing out and send it in in the morning or let's say by noon, if it wasn't as urgent, maybe by the end of the day, the next day. Uh, but it would pay a little bit more for overnight jobs. So I always liked those. And so what did you start to learn about really dissecting something? Because, I mean, are you like speed reading? How, how does one finish something and then do coverage on it within a, a two-day period like that? Well, some readers might take notes as they go. They might write notes in the margins if they're reading on paper. Um, but after a while, I just, uh, I just internalized my thoughts. And I actually had what I called the brain dump, which is... For that time period of when I was focusing on this piece of material, whether 24 hours, 48 hours, I would remember everything about it. I mean, I would be reading fast, but I would be absorbing everything, right? And I had been doing this for a long time. So I've seen the patterns in structure and in writing. And so I know immediately this is a cliche or um, this page is too dense. This dialogue is too on the nose. So I'm noting that as I'm reading really fast, even though I'm reading fast, I'm, I'm catching these things. And then when I'm done, I immediately would write up the synopsis while it was fresh in my head. And then I would write up my one page of comments. But the interesting thing was, and the reason I call it the brain dump, was the next day or two days later, a week later, I didn't remember all that detail because I was just, my brain was focused on this one 48 hour period. You have to do coverage on this piece of material. So keep it in your brain for 48 hours. And then after that, dump most of it, you know? <laughs> I mean, the great scripts and the great books that I read on the job, I still do remember, you know, elements of them. I mean, I still remember lines from like the Sixth Sense script um, and from a few other scripts and, and some books. But generally a reader is just evaluating it for one read and it's in that one 24 to 48 hour period. They're not doing pages and pages of notes. They're not meeting with the writer. You know, this isn't development. They're just evaluating 
one read after it comes in the door and they're handing their report in. And then from there, they don't really know where it goes. I'm just curious, what were some common cliches at that time you were seeing in these scripts? Well, some big uh, mistakes, I would say, that um, I would get in scripts coming in the door were like big, really big, dense blocks of description, just too many words on the page. The worst is when they make the margins really small so that they can fit more on the page because they haven't really um, tightened the script up enough. So with making the margins tiny and, and even the spacing, like the letting, um, you can make tighter in Final Draft and in other screenwriting softwares. If you do that, the, the reader immediately knows that you're cheating and they know that even your script may say it's 110 pages, but if you went to normal margins and normal spacing, it would probably be like 123 or something. So readers hate that you know, right off the bat because you're taking up more of their time. And it also shows that you're an undisciplined writer who doesn't know how to write a well-paced script in the proper spacing and format that fits into the average script being, let's say, 105 to 110 pages these days. Um, so there's that, and then there is, uh, takes too long to get to the inciting incident. The inciting incident should be between page eight, eight to 10. Sometimes 12 is okay, but we really need a catalyst. You know, we need an inciting incident to happen. And then as well, later on, you don't want act one to be too far into the script. It should be the, the break of act one and act two should be probably around page 30 doesn't have to be exactly on page 30, but around page 30, but some beginner scripts, it literally be like page 47 before a really big turn in direction happened and it felt like we were in act two. Um, so those are some examples, but the on the nose dialogue could be one of the worst. Uh, I like to say sometimes that talking heads dialogue where it's just two characters talking to each other, kind of at each other, and then Q and A sessions are the worst and that's where one, character keeps asking another questions and then they just keep answering it. So it's almost like an interview. And if that goes on for too long, it really tires out the reader and it just gets really what we call on the nose. Dan, how many screenplays would you say over the course of your lifetime you've read? I probably over a thousand. I'm not one of those people who's like, I've read five or six thousand. Dan, of the numerous scripts that you've read, how many would you say went on to become films? Uh, very few. It's very rare that they do. Um, it's hard for a script to get optioned or sold, and then it's even harder for it to get produced. So it's very rare, and that's why I always say your script has to be great. It can't just be good, it has to be great. That's why I titled my first book, How to Write a Great Screenplay with Great in, in Caps. Because working as a reader and now as a writing coach, something really has to blow me away and because it's so tough for it to rise up the ladder and become an option script, a sold script, a produced script. So you really have to come in with something with a unique voice, with a unique approach to a commercially successful genre. It's really tough. Um, so I can't really put my finger on how many uh, became produced of scripts that I read, but it's few and far between. So going back to when you were, you got a BFA at, at NYU. Yeah. You were doing this like 
script reading and all that from that time when you went to NYU to the beginning stages of the script reading job were you aware of how tough it was or at that time it was just like you thought that if something was really good and it was a first-time writer the, the doors were open I was probably a bit more naive I probably thought that more things rose up the ladder and got bought and greenlit and produced. But after a while, I realized, well, first things first, nine out of 10 scripts I would pass on, I would reject. So I got the sense right away that even though this was you know, on the professional level and these scripts were coming from agents and managers and producers, some had major stars attached but the material just wasn't there. It just wasn't great. And so I would pass on most things, nine out of 10 things. So what was great was as a reader, I was always looking for that thing to say yes to, not to say no to, because it was so exhilarating when I found that one out of 10 or one out of 20 scripts that month that really blew me away and really brought it and excited me and I was happy to give it a consider or a recommend on the coverage report. Was it that black or white? Was it either a yay or a nay? Or was there sometimes a middle ground where, yes, but this needs to be tightened up? Yeah, there's something called consider with reservations, which is this could be a great movie for my employer, but there's reservations about it. It would be really expensive. There's not a kind of star role in it. Um, it's too long, so it would need to be cut down, but we're considering it, that reader is considering it because it's great writing, you know? And now what's good about the consider with reservations or just the consider um, uh, level evaluation, which, because there's pass, consider, recommend. Recommend is really high. Recommend is like, this is not only great material, but this is ready and perfect for my employer. So this particular studio, this is right in their wheelhouse. It's right in the budget range, so I fully recommend that. Consider is a really good grade, and any writer should be excited to get a consider. And what it means is even if that particular piece of material isn't right for that production company or that studio, the writer is a good writer, and they may want to work with this writer on another project. So they may want to bring them in for a meeting, see if they're someone they could work with, and then maybe uh, give them an assignment, you know, like a rewrite assignment. Excellent. How often have you seen an unknown writer be a recommend, come in and, and they green light it and it actually happens? How often has that happened? Well, that's very rare. Um, I just, in general, I probably only gave a handful of recommends in eight, nine years. I mean, literally like five or six. In each case, I personally didn't know the writer. Like in one case, there was a book by, um, I didn't know his name at the time I was reading it, but it turns out he was a pretty well-known writer who'd written, he'd also written a famous movie and he'd written some books. But at the time, he was an unknown to me because I didn't recognize his name. Um, and so the few times I've had the recommend, they haven't been from produced name writers. They were basically from unknowns. You know, they were writers that I didn't recognize their names. Interesting. And you found something about their voice unique? Yeah, they had a great voice. Um, they had material that was in the wheelhouse of the studio I was working for. 
So it was in that genre, it was in that budget range, it was the kind of thing they were, they were looking for. When I was working for Miramax, which was headed by Harvey Weinstein at the time, the Weinstein brothers, it was known that Harvey liked to shoot in Italy. So any material that was set in Italy was to be considered higher, <laughs> you know, it was to be given more attention. And so in one case, I actually had a development executive give me a book and say, this is set in Italy, Harvey loves Italy, he's looking for another thing to shoot in Italy, he just shot Gangs of New York with Scorsese there, and so I really want you to give this a good evaluation and hopefully you'll like it. And I actually asked her, I'm like, do you want me to just give it a consider, you know, even if it sucks, you know, like, help you out here? And she's like, no, 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 I want you to give us your honest opinion. And I read it and it wasn't good enough. And so I passed on it. And I don't know what happened after that, but she probably wasn't happy with me. <laughs> it's better that you're honest so, about it. Yeah, it's all about the material. So, sure. and I just didn't think the material was there. So as a reader, you don't know very much about this writer. And is that right, I'm, I'm assuming? It's yeah, you don't know anything really. That's good. Unless you recognize the name. So yeah, the reader gets no information going in. They may see uh, a cover letter. They may see an email history, maybe, but not always. So if they happen to see an email history, they may know a little bit about the, you know, this is what the agent has written back and forth with the development executive before they actually send the PDF. So the reader may see that, but they probably won't because it's all about the material. Is this material strong enough? You know, if it's coming from Aaron Sorkin, you may give a little bit more weight to that because Aaron Sorkin can get a film made. He can write a greenlit movie, but you're still evaluating on the writing. So if Aaron Sorkin has written something that's not right for your company or just isn't at the level of quality that would get a recommend or a consider, if that reader's being honest, they're going to pass on it. Right. Yeah, I was just wondering how much of your own personal bias, you know, if you see someone's picture, you might like them more and then like their script more, you know. Or, yeah. Or if you know their backstory and then... Uh, just... Maybe, but you shouldn't do that. You mm -hmm. shouldn't have any bias. And in my experience, I almost never knew the backstory of a particular piece of material. So before the interview, we were taking a look at your site, and it's excellent. Uh, it's actforscreenplays.com, mm -hmm. um, and you have so many interesting parts to it, so we're going to have some questions with that. Um, one of which is, I think, something you wrote where you put, in Hollywood, nothing will ever be stronger than a great story. Trends come and go, stars rise and fall, studios succeed and fold, but a great story will always be king. And mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if you can talk about, you know, why story is king, and some of the parts to that? Well, story is timeless. Um, a great script or great piece of material is timeless. It, uh, trends do come and go in film, you know, uh, visuals and use of CGI, uh, developments with digital equipment, you know, all these things, 3D versus 2D. Now we're getting to virtual reality, but what really matters is that great story. It doesn't matter how big the budget of a movie is. It doesn't matter if it's in 3D or not. The audience is going to respond if it's a great movie, if it's a great story. So 
a great piece of material can really blow away everything, you know? Like, think about an actor, they're gonna go through various levels of popularity. They may be hot right now or not, but a great script is always gonna be a great script. So that's really the only currency in Hollywood that really means something, you know? Nobody knows anything, as William Goldman famously said, about Hollywood. And look at, uh, there's been a number of movies this year, as any year, with big stars that bomb and probably a big reason is the material. You know, it's not just that the stars are hot. This year, uh, Passengers, with basically the two hottest stars in the world, Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence, came out and it totally bombed. And I, had heard, I haven't seen it, but I heard from some people liked it and some people didn't, but there was a lot wrong, apparently, with the script, with the structure of the film, with um, just the story in general. Just the story didn't grab people and it didn't matter how big the stars were in that role. So it's really the only currency that you have, especially for writers, it's the, your only currency is your material, is your spec script, whether it's a spec pilot for a TV series or a spec feature. Yeah, I find that so interesting that, you know, yes, story is king, but the writer gets so little credit and is often not even brought in on set, and so many changes are made unbeknownst to them. So I find that fascinating, but it really does come down to that story. Because you talked about being a script reader and that there were a few stories that you still remember to this day, mm -hmm. and, and how whether they pulled at your own sort of heartstrings or whatever it was, that story really does stay with you. Can you think of some mm -hmm. films that you, you know even from a child that, that just really stayed with you and maybe they didn't have huge stars attached? Maybe they did? Well, let's talk about a class. I just got two movies on Blu-ray that I hadn't had on Blu-ray. I just ordered from Amazon and they are Minority, Minority Report and The Wizard of Oz. Oh, wow. The Wizard of Oz is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a classic. Right. And, but I primarily got it because I wanted to show it to my nieces and nephews. You know, someday, if they're, we're all together for Christmas or something, I want to make sure that they see it. They probably will see it at some point, but just in case they haven't seen it, or even if they had, and it's Christmas and we're looking for something family-friendly, and I wanted it on Blu-ray, I wanted it in the best quality possible, and it's just, it's timeless. It's never going to not be great. So. Right there, it's a generational thing. I want to pass this on to the next generation. Now, I don't know how old they have to be before I can show them Goodfellas, you know, <laughs> or yeah. if they'll ever like Goodfellas. But um, I would love to see if they like Goodfellas someday or Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know. Sure. We'll wait till college to show yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe college. <laughs> According to your site, 95% of great movies follow the story map. I'm curious, what is a story map? A story map is a structural template that's followed by most commercial films and it breaks a story, a, a film narrative, into four acts, Act 1, Act 2A, Act 2B, and Act 3. And it contains four major story engines that drive each one of the individual acts and 8 to 12 uh, major signpost plot beats. It's not deciding what you will write, it's providing a form and a template with which the writer pours their story into. So a writer still makes their own unique creative decisions, but it, they may want to think about what page ranges those decisions fall in and the kind of basic beats 
that would inform the storytelling. Okay. Where do you think many new writers go wrong in terms of the map, in terms of the layout? Where are most new writers weak mm -hmm. in that structure? Often it's overwriting to the point where those beats are falling too late. Uh, like I mentioned, the inciting incident should probably be between eight, eight to, page 8 to 12. But we also want something that I call the strong movement forward, the, the next major beat to be in the page 18 to 20 range. Sometimes that doesn't happen until 28, and then the true end of Act 1, which should be around page 30, is in the beginner script not happening until page 38. And that really makes the reader anxious, and it slows down the pace of the story and the structure. So it's not hitting the proper page ranges. Uh, again, this isn't deciding what you should write, but it's deciding uh, basically what page ranges the major beats should be, how you should tell the story to some extent, okay? Kind of that outer frame of the story with which you're pouring your unique, unique decisions into. But as far as mistakes, there is a, a major signpost beat falling too early, too late, or just not being there. Uh, for example, there is a beat that I call the assumption of power or declaration of war beat. And this should happen around page 75, and you can see it in movies, it happens around minute 75. If that's not there, if there's not that moment where this character really feels their true power and acts in a way that makes them rise to the occasion and kind of a, a declaration of war or an attack and a declaration of intent and something that taps their inner strength, if that's not happening in that page range, I don't think the story is necessarily moving as it should. Interesting. Is there an example of a film or two that you could just tell us about, like when that moment is? That's fascinating mm -hmm. to me. Yeah, the what I call the Declaration of War slash Assumption of Power beat is around page 75 in a screenplay and minute 75 in a film. So a classic example would be in The Karate Kid, the show me paint house moment. Show me paint the fence. Show me sand the floor. And it's that moment at which Daniel LaRusso realizes he's been learning karate all along, even though Mr. Miyagi has been making him do all his chores. So he asks him to show him the, the positions that he's put his hands as he's been doing these chores, and it turns out he's been learning karate this whole time. So he really, Daniel really realizes his true power, realizes he can do karate, and he's doing it already. So when you go back to read scripts that um, you can tell are from a more seasoned writer, you, you say that you just see it as a tighter, um, in terms of when, you know, say the inciting incident, pages 8 through 10, or it, it's just, it, it's a more on the nose. It flows. It better. flows, okay. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you can tell maybe someone who's more of a, a green writer, baby writer, by the fact that it's it's looser, it's either it's either farther pushed down or too soon or something. Yeah, it's overwritten. Scenes are too long. They drag on too long. You have those Q and A sessions of dialogue, those talking head scenes, where there's just too much on the nose dialogue. This the the scene isn't moving forward. You want every scene to advance the story, to explore the controlling theme, or reveal crucial character. Okay, it has to advance the story. So definitely that first one it has to do in some way. 
And then ideally, it will also be on theme, that major theme, that central theme that this particular story is exploring. And then third, does it reveal some crucial character, you know, something that we haven't seen before about this particular character. So what about the school of thought where people say, you know, it doesn't have to be so on the nose, and then there's others that are like, yes, it does. Well, what's your take on that? Because we mean, do as get as far comments. as like page points and structure? Yeah, yeah. Some people yeah. really debate that and they feel really controlled by that, but it sounds like mm -hmm. it's, it's incredibly important because the, the reader or the viewer will lose interest. I think it is, you know, I think structure is very important and hitting those page points is important uh, if for no other reason because every reader in Hollywood has internalized that structure. But I mean the real proof in the pudding is that when you read pro scripts by produced writers, by the top writers in Hollywood who are making the top money, they use this structure. So there has to be something about it that is the reason why uh, the first act of a movie is around 30 minutes. I mean, there's something there. There's some reason why that works. Well, Dan, we've pulled a few comments from a few videos from our YouTube channel and just wanted to run them by you and see what you think because they do have the, you know, a, a point to what they're making here. One comment is, anyone who says there's not a formulaic process in mainstream Hollywood movies and movies in general is kidding themselves. We expect a certain story structure based on a thousand years of Western storytelling. Deviate at your own risk. I would agree with that, except it's not a formula, it's a form. Okay, a formula would dictate what you write. A form is dictating how you structure it, at what point do you reveal things, at what point should the story keep moving forward and keep flowing rather than stop dead in its tracks or just have a eight-page dialogue scene. So it's not formula, it's form. And I constantly remind my clients about that and my students. It's really important to understand that. Interesting. Okay, I like that. Uh, another comment. No wonder people are dissatisfied with Hollywood. Every movie is similar and so predictable that the industry has committed the biggest sin. It is so predictable that it bores one to tears. <laughs> Story plot lines really are business plans in disguise instead of entertainment. That can be true, and I do see that being true uh, in kind of more and more Hollywood movies, the franchise films. They are very formulaic, and they are employing the same character arcs, the same themes. Like the theme uh, in animation, a lot of times it's the theme of believe in yourself, you can do anything, you know. And I think it's, uh, it's more interesting when you see an animated film that's a little bit more complex than that. It's a little bit more complicated than that. So I personally do like to see other themes explored and a little bit more uh, intelligent exploration of character and theme. And I do agree that a lot of the franchise films are becoming similar because they're using similar character arcs and similar themes and similar plot devices, you know? Um, a lot of the action movies today, I'm just so bored by because it's just battle after battle. Even something like, like Logan. Logan was very different from a lot of other superhero films and I think the audience responded because of that. There was more character, there was, it was darker, it was, it was more mature. But once he starts slashing in those action scenes, I honestly get a little bored. I've seen Wolverine slash with his claws in, what, seven, eight movies by now, maybe more. 
So those long extended action scenes and battle scenes and car chases, for me, don't interest me as much because I've seen them in so many movies. Now, maybe 12, 14, 15 year olds, it is more interesting and that is a core audience, but a screenwriter shouldn't necessarily be focused on that 14, 15 year old boy audience because they already have a bunch of highly paid writers in Hollywood who will write those particular franchise films. A screenwriter breaks in because they have great characters, great dialogue, and they explore themes in interesting ways. And they come up with a new, unique take on a commercially proven genre. That's what you want to do. You want to blow away the reader. You want to write a really great piece of material so that you get your foot in the door and then they'll hire you to do those assignments. But they don't necessarily want a new writer to write a huge franchise film because, if for no other reason because those cost so much. They're not going to entrust a newbie with a $100 million movie. And even if it's a lower budget film, you don't have to write for the lowest common denominator. You should write to the top of your intelligence. And don't you have a book that you've written about uh, writing a superhero script? I have a webinar that a I've webinar. written um, called Writing the Superhero Movie. And yeah, I'm a huge fan of superhero films and I like them when they really stand out with some unique character development and interesting themes. Um, I love most of the Marvel movies. They're getting a little bit more formulaic uh, in my opinion, uh, a little bit familiar in the themes and action scenes, you know, now. Um, but I do love the superhero genre, and I'm always hoping that a writer will do something new with it. We talk about core formats, and that's a term that's new for me. So what should a writer know about creating story for each one? And I understand in your book you talk about the one-hour drama or dramedy, 30-minute uh, single-camera sitcom, 30-minute multi-camera sitcom, a 30-minute dramedy hybrid, or the web series, which is incredibly popular right mm -hmm. now. Well, first things first, write something that you would want to watch. Write a format that you love, that you would want to watch. So if you prefer one-hour dramas like Breaking Bad or Mad Men or something like that, then write one of those. Ideally, you would know those formats. So if you love Breaking Bad, Mad Men, The Good Wife, then you would probably know a little bit more about that format. You just internalize a little bit more about that format. And ideally, you want to map out or outline out several episodes of your favorite shows before you tackle that first pilot. So you understand the structure a little bit more and you're not just writing freeform, especially if you're coming from features because you really need to understand the TV structure. So write what you know and love and would watch. Uh, the 30-minute dramedy, ten they tend to have more of a cultural viewpoint. There's more diversity in the 30-minute dramedies, and they're more uh, they're set in a more specific world. Definitely than, definitely more than like a multi-camera sitcom, like a Big Bang Theory, for example. It's more of a subculture. It's more of a microculture, and I guess you'd say a personal viewpoint. But the more personal you can get, the more specific you can get. That applies to any format. What do you see many people venturing into these days, like the web series, which has been the most popular 2016-2017? Well, there are more one-hour scripted dramas than other formats. Actually, 
out there in the marketplace, like on cable, you know, on, on your TV or on a streaming service like Amazon or Netflix. So there are more of those, but I really think you should write what you want to watch. So it's really up to you. There may be more one hours being made than any other format, but in my opinion, the most interesting and unique and experimental form today is the 30 minute single camera show, whether it's a single camera sitcom or a single camera dramedy hybrid. There just is more going on there. There's more unique creator driven material than ever in that format. And I would like to think that networks are more open to it and streaming services are more open to it because it is cheaper to create, to produce a 30 minute show than a one hour scripted show. Certainly like a, a one hour action show or one hour period piece, those are gonna be really expensive. So it's cheaper and some of them come from web series, something like uh, Issa Rae doing Insecure started as a web series. Um, Difficult People was a web series. So it's easier to get in the door with an established 30 minute series. What's the first step in writing a screenplay, either for television or feature film? Well, I think it's making sure that your concept can sustain a full feature film or a series. Now in TV, it's trickier because you not only need to have a great pilot, which is one episode of your show, but you need to have a concept that can sustain a series for multiple seasons. So you need to have what a friend of mine called a playground, a dramatic playground, which is you create this very specific world and then you put these interesting characters into it to play and to bang against each other and have lots of dramatic conflict. If that idea is something that can sustain and run for a while, then maybe that's a better idea for TV. Whereas feature films have closed endings. So you're gonna have an idea with a beginning, middle, end, and that's pretty much that. Okay, let's take the feature film. So first step in writing uh, a screenplay for a feature film. I would say story mapping it out. Um, if you have a concept that you think is great and you're passionate about it and you want to write it, write a story map, which is your basic outline. So it's gonna be your eight to 12 major signpost beats and your four story engines. And you're gonna define your core elements first, what I call the basic story map, which is your protagonist, their external and internal goal, the main dramatic conflict that's standing in the way of that goal that's gonna, that's gonna generate all those obstacles that are really gonna sustain the story. Your controlling theme, which is your major meta theme that you're gonna be exploring. And then a few other elements like your protagonist, you want to have their skill, their misbehavior. A misbehavior is a quirk or personality trait that consistently generates conflict. And then their Achilles heel which is just that thing that could destroy them, could potentially destroy them. So once you have those core elements and then you have the major sound signpost beats of your outline, then you're ready to do a full scene outline and then jump in and write pages. What's the first step in writing a screenplay for a TV series? I would always say start the story as late as possible. Enter the story as late as possible so you don't have too much setup, and so that the story can get going right away. Okay, do you think sometimes new writers, um, they, they again, they, they overwrite and it's too dense and they're just kind of like giving us too much backstory? 
yeah, yeah, too much setup. You don't need that much setup. Maybe you're opening with a flash forward like in Breaking Bad. It's like, boom, we're in this really tense scene where there's this guy in his underwear driving an RV like a bat out of hell and he has a gas mask on and he crashes the RV. And uh, in the script, he was called Underwear Man before we find out, found out his name was Walter White. But uh, they just, boom, dropped us right into the action and that's something that uh, really grabs a reader. Can we talk about the difference in creating a fascinating protagonist for film versus television? Or maybe it's the same? For film, I think it's going to be affected by that closed ending because their arc is going to arc over the course of this 90 to 120 minute film or 90 to 110 page screenplay and then it's going to end basically and that's where we're going to leave the character whereas a tv protagonist they have to be able to go through various arcs over the course of years you know it may be on for 10 seasons so there needs to be the potential for that kind of growth now you don't need to know what's going to happen to this character for 10 seasons but it would be good to know the basics of what will happen like in the first two or three seasons for example any examples of characters you can provide? Um... Well, if you give your protagonist a lot of emotional baggage, then there's going to be a lot to unpack, you know, over time. Um, something like Carrie from Homeland, she's bipolar and she um, is reckless in her behavior. And she uh, starts an affair with this guy that she's supposed to be tracking that's a potential terrorist in season one. So she's kind of a mess. And so there's definitely going to be drama with her going forward. Or, or Don Draper from Mad Men, he has this secret personality from the past. And he has this secret that he's keeping. Who, what is his true identity? That's always a risk to come out to destroy him. So if you keep some kind of element there, some kind of Achilles heel, always there and ready to destroy them, then you're going to get a lot of seasons of material out of that hero. Let's talk about for a feature film, because you said there's that, that closure. So mm -hmm. what, what makes, uh, can you give any examples of an interesting protagonist? Could be current film, could be... Yeah, a classic example of a great character arc would be Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, that first Indiana Jones film. His arc is to accept the supernatural. He doesn't believe in anything supernatural or spiritual. He doesn't believe in God. Okay, so when he gets this mission to find the Ark of the Covenant, he, does, he just thinks it's a relic. You know, he doesn't think that it's actually something that could have any kind of power. His final fruition of the Ark is when he respects, let's say, God's power and the power of the Ark, and he shuts his eyes and he tells Marion to shut her eyes once the Ark has been opened and the power of the art kills all the Nazis, but does not hurt him and Marion because they've respected God and not looked at the face of God. So it's not just him in a fight. You know, you would think it's an action movie, nonstop action. It would be him fighting the head Nazi. It's not at all. And that's what makes it such an interesting choice for the character and to close the film. It's him respecting the spiritual world. Can you talk about when you went to Tisch for film and television, what was the curriculum regarding writing at that time? And if you were to take it today and teach a class there, what would you add to it? What would you change, keep the same? Hmm. 
Well, there wasn't a ton of screenwriting when I was there. My favorite class was screenplay analysis, you know, and no shocker there. <laughs> um, the first produced screenplay that I read was in that class. We read The Silence of the Lambs, which was a really great script. And it was interesting because that script was exactly 120 pages. And they always say one page equals one minute. So it was exactly 120 minutes, two hours. And that got me thinking, hmm, how would this writer end, know that he's going to end exactly two hours in, 120 pages in? And, that, and then in the course of the class, we learned about structure and how important structure was and that it was structured exactly to end on page 120. You said there weren't too many classes on writing there, and of course mm -hmm. the ones that, the time, that yeah. you, you, you loved. Um, how would you expand on it today, knowing today's uh, you know, landscape in terms of these different um, sort of core formats? Mm -hmm. What would you add to the curriculum? Let's say they invited you to come back as a, a teacher, mm -hmm. a professor. Well, I think I would definitely emphasize uh, television, the long-form scripted television writing form. And I would probably emphasize low-budget filmmaking, writing something that could be shot on a low budget. Now films are being shot on iPhones and they're getting released in theaters and they're getting nominated for awards and winning awards. So I would go in and tell these kids, they probably already know it, but you can shoot a movie on anything, on any topic, on any type of equipment. And if it's good and it has a great story, it could have an afterlife but it still has to have that great story. So it doesn't matter what technology you use, I would say learn about screenwriting and learn about structure and focus on the writing first. And in terms of the actual breakdown of writing a screenplay, what do you think you would focus on more in terms of structure or dialogue or? Like for students? Yeah, if you were to become back as a professor and mm -hmm. have say uh, with the curriculum. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would most definitely focus on structure the most. I think just flowing, uh, short, tight storytelling. You know, there's nothing better than a two-page scene that really advances the story and surprises us and, you know, brings up a turn in direction and shows us an element of the character that we didn't see coming. You know, it's all about surprise and subverting our expectations. That's why it's so important not to have cliches because the audience and the reader doesn't want to know what's going to happen because it's compelling if they're surprised. So I would probably emphasize that structure and surprising storytelling, not cliche storytelling. So you went into the program thinking about the industry and knowing there were certain films that you wanted to write in a similar genre and similar voice. When you came out of the program, what did the real world show you? What was an eye-opener? What was maybe a disappointment? What was more of an un unplanned sort of uh, joyous discovery about the industry? Well, it took me a while to realize that working in the industry at a day job, um, you don't have to be creative. They don't want you to be creative unless you're in a creative position. So I was so obsessed with, um, with selling a screenplay and directing my first film when I was in my early 20s. And I was doing my first day jobs as you know, interns, as an administrative assistant, as a reader. And I was always looking for a way to impress the boss so that they would eventually 
bankroll my film or buy my script. And what I didn't realize was it was all about just working hard, put your head down, work harder than the next guy. And then if you work hard enough and they believe in you because you've worked so hard and shown that initiative and taken any job out there, no matter how, you know, any task they give you, no matter how bad or ugly or gross or whatever, take that job, do the best job you can at it, do it 120% and that's what's gonna get you hired. That's what's gonna get you the better position to move up the ladder. So when you say they don't necessarily want people that are creative, that's interesting. So even if you're a fantastic writer, it doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna get a certain job where writing skills aren't maybe at the forefront of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like if you're working in development, uh, your job is to evaluate material and develop material for your employer's uh, company. You know, it's not to write your own script. It's to find material and find material that's right for your employer and then develop that material so that it can be a greenlit film. So if you're a screenwriter working in development, let's say you're an assistant to a creative director um, or a director of development at a studio, they don't want you to be writing your screenplay, you know, two hours of the day. They want you to support them in finding great material elsewhere. Do you think internships are uh, good for someone coming out of film school? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, it can be challenging because how do you pay your rent if you're working at a free internship, you know, and that's one, uh, that's one challenge that I had as well. I used to do temp work. I used to do administrative assistant temp work at the time and try to do internships at the same time, which was challenging. Oh, wow. But yeah, definitely internships, but the main advice is just work hard, work harder than the next guy. That sounds like a lot. How did you juggle that? Well, it was tough. Um, I would try to get temp jobs. I would tell my supervisors at the temp company that I wanted jobs that were only like one, two or three days. And then hopefully that would make me enough money maybe for a couple weeks. And then those two or three days that I wasn't working that week, I would go into the internship at the film company. Oh, interesting. It was tough, but I figured it out somehow. So you have a mantra on your site, which is actforscreenplays.com. And the mantra is craft equals business, which means focus on your craft first and foremost, and the commercial success will follow. And I was wondering if we could expand on that. Yeah. It's more important to write a great script than it is to worry about what door you're going to get it in, you know, to worry about the commercial aspect, the marketing aspect. Focus on writing a great piece of material and that will open doors for you. So don't worry too much about writing for the market. It is something that you should consider. I mean, you don't want to write a three hour drama set in 1903 about you know a grandma and her dog maybe unless it's the greatest thing you could ever think of you probably do want to write something that's a little bit more for today's commercial marketplace but your main job is to write a great script that's going to blow away that reader i know you i think you'd also said that you know if you try to play to the market by the time you get that story out there and go through meetings that trend will have sailed yeah, it's very possible that that particular trend um, will be gone by the time you finally finish this, get it in professional quality, you know, highest quality to really blow away that reader and really move up the ranks. And 
An example of that would be there was a big fairy tale uh, trend in Hollywood in film and TV a few years ago. And it's pretty much dead now because they bought so much material. And so now you probably should think twice about writing a new take on a fairy tale. It doesn't mean you can't, doesn't mean you couldn't write a great thing on that. But you should probably check with the industry to see if there hasn't already been a script with that similar premise. Like let's say you have a new take on um, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, for example. Check with people that you know in development to see that maybe there weren't three Goldilocks and the Three Bears specs floating around five years ago and two of them were already bought and are sitting in the uh, you know, coffers of the studios. And then if you don't know anyone in development, let's suppose you, you haven't made those contacts yet, is there a way, could you look through the trades? I would say, yeah, look through the trades, you know, Hollywood Reporter, Variety, uh, Deadline.com. So look through the trades. Um, There's certain, certain websites that might have a little bit more insight into the industry. Just try and do whatever research you can. Right. And just like timing the market is, is difficult in whatever sort of market you're trying to enter into, and finding that next big trend. I mean, that's like the million dollar question in any industry. Yeah, don't so. worry about it. <laughs> don't worry about it. You're writing a writing sample. Most, as a newbie, you're mostly writing a writing sample that shows your talent, that shows your voice, that shows your writing quality. And that will get you picked up by a manager or an agent. And they're gonna have you write more scripts that will then maybe those will be the pieces of business. Those will be the things that sell. But that first high quality writing sample that you write, that's going to get the industry interested in, in you. It's more about the writing than about the saleability. I love it. So once someone gets this agent or manager, though, I see a lot of people resting on their laurels and thinking, oh, okay, well now I have representation, so I'm good mm -hmm. now. But it, it's not. It sounds like you're still doing exactly the same thing. Yeah, you're still writing, writing, writing. Um, you're only as good as your last script and you need to have a portfolio of scripts. Not, you don't have to have 10 scripts ready to go, but a few scripts ready to go in case you're in a meeting and you say, hey, I've got this action script that I wrote you know, two years ago or two weeks ago. And they really like the idea. They really want to read it. So you have to have that ready to submit. You, know? you want to have different scripts in your portfolio so that they're ready to submit at any, any moment. And knowing that someone that's a new writer will not be as high a priority with their agent and manager, how much should they be in contact with them and how proactive should they be? Because I feel like if someone's not proactive enough, they're going to drown in the sea of all the other calls and emails this person gets. I don't know. That's a tough question, but I would say one lesson there is it's not their job to get all of your submissions. You should be networking as well, even if you have good representation. You should be finding submissions and then you tell them to send your script and they, they will email it. And so it'll kind of be on their letterhead. So it's an official submission. So you do need to be proactive and find places to submit your script and to make connections and shake hands and get FaceTime with potential buyers but then you have representation to send them the script and they'll read it because you have rep legal representation, whether it's a lawyer, agent, or manager. So really almost be in the mindset of, I don't have someone representing me in terms of finding me work. 
but then once I do find that sort of nugget where I can try to submit to that uh, then I can put it on their letterhead and I look more you know it's it's not even that you look better having a rep it's that in a lot of cases big companies do not accept unrep material they don't accept unsolicited material so unless it's coming from a lawyer a manager or an agent they won't read it and they say they can't read it for liability reasons so it's really important that you get yourself a rep. Dan, if we were to delve into the mind of most new writers, whether they live in LA or, or they're living somewhere else, do you think that they view a lot of their work as a sample or a series of samples, or are they seeing it as the next big thing that, wow, once it's discovered, this thing is taking LA and, and New York mm -hmm. and, London by storm. <laughs> Definitely London. Yeah. <laughs> um, not as many scripts get bought as used to be. So um, I think it's imperative that they think of it more as a writing sample of their work. Yeah, too many new writers are thinking, I'm going to sell this for six figures and I can live off that for the next 10 years, you know, and I'm going to sell a whole bunch more scripts in, that, in, in the meantime. But they don't buy as many scripts as they used to, and it's a really, really competitive market, especially for newbies. So I think it's best if you think of it more as a writing sample. But yeah, I do see a lot of writers who are trying to write for the market, and they're trying to write something that they think Hollywood will buy because Hollywood makes a lot of those types of movies. But unfortunately, they're borrowing formulas and cliches from those movies and that's not the right thing to do on the page. On the page, you still need to really impress that reader and have something unique, bring something to the table. Let's say I'm a new writer and I'm very precious about something that I've written and it's very close to my heart, it's very emotional. I've been able to get a chance to present it and I've been told this is a great sample and now I'm hurt, I'm angry, my hopes are dashed. <laughs> okay. Where do I go from here? Well, if you've been told, you mean it, you've been told it's a great sample, but it's rejected, or your manager says, I'm gonna send this out as a great sample to get you jobs. Let's suppose they send it out to get me jobs, and then we've been told, this is a great sample, but this isn't gonna work, and what else do you mm -hmm. have, and let's, let's start getting more samples. You're not ready yet. You're ready, you, you're, you're, this is not the end all mm -hmm. right here, that you thought it was. Well. I mean, first cross that bridge when you get to it, you know, um, it only takes one great script to get your foot in the door and that's going to happen. You're going to get rejected way more often than they're going to say, this is a great script and I want to work with you. So you got to have a thick skin. You have to get used to that rejection. And the name of the game is to find that one champion in the business for that particular script that you have. And Four out of five people are gonna pass on it. Nine out of 10 studios that you send it to are gonna pass on it. So it's your job to find that one champion executive or producer or agent that is willing to go all the way with it, that is willing to push, push past that rejection over and over until the point where it does get optioned or sold or made as a, a cheap movie that's funded on Kickstarter by a, a really talented director. Okay, so then let's suppose we keep sending it out and 
my take is they just don't get it. They don't understand where I'm coming mm. from. They don't believe in this material. Hollywood just wants to make these things that <laughs> no one really cares about. There's no heart and soul. Am I too sensitive for the industry? Do I just really need to be honest with myself about the work I'm creating? I think you should take some time away, put it in a drawer, metaphorically, take some time away from it, do some thinking, and it's your job to keep writing. So if you only want to write this one script, then yeah, you are in the wrong place. You're in the wrong business. So you have to keep writing and writing and producing material. Hopefully you have at least one other idea that you want to write that hopefully is a little bit more commercial, but you just have to keep writing and you have to keep pushing past rejection. And yeah, it is tough and it's dog eat dog. So if you don't have the thick skin for it, then maybe it's not the business for you. Well, what if I know that I'm sensitive, but I still want to be in the industry? I mean, it's a, it's a realization that, you mm -hmm. know, we find out things about ourselves. We don't necessarily yeah. want to be a certain way. But what if we say, okay, so I can't submit my own work because I'm so precious about it and it makes me so infuriated to know that I can't get it made. But what else can I do in the industry where it's not as personal? Well, I think you just should produce it yourself. I think you should produce your work. Um, like for example, you could take your feature and you could cut it up into 10 minute webisodes, for example, and put it on YouTube, put it on Vimeo and produce something, put something out into the world rather than just keep getting rejected. Hmm. And uh, if you feel like you're too sensitive to keep getting rejected, well, at least at the end of the day, you've produced this and you have something, you know, something of quality that you're proud of. And it could potentially get either people to reconsider the script or reconsider you as someone who could, who could potentially write an assignment. And what about other jobs where there might be more of a steady paycheck coming in? Well, there's tons of jobs in the industry. If you want to go into production, you know, start as a PA. Um, there are jobs in development offices. There's jobs. Uh, I see jobs listed all the time on LinkedIn. Um, there's a lot of jobs for social media coordinators at various companies. I see Netflix and Amazon and um, even like commercial production companies. and a lot of companies involved with entertainment. So, I mean, I don't know if I could say a specific job for a sensitive writer, what they would do, but I would say, look on LinkedIn. There's actually a lot of jobs uh, in the entertainment industry. Dan, this isn't a fully fleshed out question, but I just want to throw this out at you. So on your website, you say theme is why you tell the story. Structure is how you tell it. Structure is going to be, um, the storytelling aspect, how you tell the story, where do you start the story, where do you enter the narrative, do you use flash forwards or flashbacks, or do you just use a very straightforward linear structure. Um, you know, there's a thousand decisions that go into how you order your signpost beats and how long your scenes are going to be and what your midpoint is going to be and all that. But theme is why you're telling this story, what is passionate uh, to you that you're writing about? What is this central idea that you're exploring that you are interested in that you feel like this narrative is supporting and exploring? So your story should really explore your meta theme that you really love, that you're passionate about, that you think is interesting enough to sustain a feature or a series. And it really should seep into every scene 
of your script, ideally. And then structure is how you're going to tell the story in terms of your scene order, how long each act is going to be, how long each scene is going to be, where you enter the story, where you leave the story, where you enter each scene and where you leave each scene. So those kind of decisions go into structure. How does a screenwriter know when it's time to sell their screenplay? Well, you want to show it to a bunch of friends. You want to get notes from friends who know screenwriting, who know movies, and can give you know how to give notes on a script. So ideally, you're in a writer's group, and you've gotten feedback from your writer's group. You've written, I would say, at least five or six drafts, because writing is rewriting, as we know. and. Hopefully, maybe you've shown it to someone who's in the industry, not as a submission, but as a friend read, where they've given you some feedback. So there's really no way to know exactly when you're going to uh, be ready to bring something to market, but basically field test it with as many people as you can to the point where you feel like it's in its best shape possible. Okay, and let's suppose friends, family, say, oh, this is excellent. Now we know that they have their reasons for saying it as well, and mm -hmm. they don't want to hurt our feelings, they want to see us do well. Um, let's suppose we're ready to try to go out there and take it to market. What are some of the first things? What are some websites that we can go to? Well, what can we do to try to help sell it? Well, I think you should uh, make a hit list of companies and people that you're going to send your script to. I mean, first of all, it's good to get a rep. So. You want to send it to managers that accept unsolicited submissions. I believe the Writers Guild has a list of those. Um, there's a website called The Tracking Board where you can probably find some good manager lists. But I always say, pick up the phone. That's the big thing now. We don't make as many phone calls as we used to. It, you know, it makes us all a little nervous. And if you're a skittish uh, writer who's more of an introvert, that's tough. But you have to pick up the phone and you can actually get submissions just from cold calling and introducing yourself and being nice and saying, hey, here's what my script's about. Here's the log line. Do you want to read it? Now, they may shut you down right away and say, we don't accept any unsolicited submissions, but they may love it and they can send you a waiver form that you can sign to where you can submit without a rep. But that's only if They've heard your logline, they've heard your pitch, and they really like it, and they want to read it. Hi, thank you for waiting. I'm sorry, say this again? I'm wondering if I can send my screenplay to you. Actually, no. I'm wondering if I can have my manager send my screenplay to you. I think maybe someone at your company would be interested because it is in spirit and theme similar to this award-winning film that you made. And I just won an award at the XYZ contest. Okay. For my script. Okay, great. I'm going to transfer you to um, Mr. Smith's voicemail and you can leave a message. Okay? okay. And so, hey, this is Mr. Smith. Da 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 da. Please leave a message. I'm away from my desk. Beep. Hey, this is Joe Screenwriter. Thank you for considering me and my screenplay. I have an action comedy and I have come in, I've placed in two contests and I really think you guys might be interested in it. And I would like to know if I can have my manager, Jojo, at XYZ Management Company send it over to you. Could you have someone there call me and then give your phone number and your email as well? Excellent. And, uh, you know, it's luck of the draw. Who knows?
Right. But is, is it great to maybe have it all written down, what you're going to say, so you don't get thrown off? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, have your script ready. Mm -hmm. um, you definitely want to have your log line ready or your short elevator pitch ready. This won't fly. Right, right. Yeah, because I think sometimes that's half the battle is like calling and you don't literally have a script. It's almost like you're a telemarketer in mm -hmm. some ways. Mm -hmm. and, and then they sense it and then they're yeah. like, you know what, sorry, they shut you down. But I feel like if you've done it enough times, even if you've been rejected, they, they are, they're less likely to totally cut you off. Yeah, have a script ready, practice it, do it uh, you know, a few times, and you can do it under fire on the job. I mean, call, let's say you have a list of 10 production companies that you want to submit to. Start with the two or three that are lowest on your list. So they're kind of, you're just going to practice with them, right? And you just practice your sales pitch, which is what it is. But you want to compliment them on their work. You want to highlight what is good about you. So let's say you have written an action comedy about an EMT, right? An emergency driver, and you happen to be an EMT, then that's something, boom, you should say right away that you have a particular occupation or experience that makes that lends itself to this material and gives it more credibility and then if you have contest wins or placements if you have any kind of accolades if you have any kind of personal connection like even if you just went to a panel and you saw a, a production executive from a certain studio on this panel you can call and that might be your opening hey i saw I saw Joe Morgan on the panel at the AFI and I really thought he gave some really great advice and he mentioned at the end that he would love to find a great action buddy comedy. And I happened to have one and it just placed in the North Carolina uh, screenplay contest. Can I tell you a little bit more about it? So, and then you tell them more about it and you give them your log line and then they decide whether it sounds like something they're interested in or not. And Maybe you're super nervous and so they shut you down because of that. Maybe you don't have an agent manager or lawyer uh, you know, to send it in. Maybe they shut you down for that, but you should because if you don't have an agent or a manager, just find a lawyer who can send it in, okay? And you can find a lawyer. Somebody must know a lawyer. They may charge you a little money. I don't know, uh, you know how, how ethical that is, but they may say, hey, I'll do your script submission for $40 or something. If it means that much to you and you know that this person is is a great person in a great company, maybe that's worth it to you, maybe it's not. I don't know. In what ways can a writer improve their dialogue? Listening, uh, practice. I mean, just keep writing, keep rewriting. Um, have actors read it out loud. I mean, they don't have to be professional actors, but just you and a friend read it out loud, listen to how it flows. Uh, I think that can be really helpful. I like that listening. Where, where are we listening? Listening to how people talk. Um, listening to interesting people <laughs> around, how they talk. And then uh, once you write your dialogue, read it out loud, you know, do a table read with friends or your writer's group or um, just even if you read it out loud yourself. Hmm find it interesting that a lot of times people, certain people end their sentences with right or you know, like, and they, they mm -hmm. continually do that. Is that important? Because even though that's not 
you know, it can get actually irritating after a while, but there's certain people that that's how they sort of, they always want validation for what they're saying. So it's mm -hmm. right, right. I, women do that a lot, and I'm gonna say that about my own gender. So we do a lot of right, right? Because we want people to know that they heard us and they got what we said. Mm -hmm. Do we infuse things like that into a script, or has that become too repetitive? Well, you want each character to sound unique to themselves. You know, ideally, if you covered up the character's name and read the line, you would be able to tell that it was that specific character because they should have a specific voice. Um, and yeah, if you have a character who needs validation and every sentence, you know, ends with right or is that okay or good, then you would write that, you know. But in listening to how real people talk, it doesn't mean you're transcribing it exactly, you know. People don't talk like they're in a movie, but so there is a certain amount of, you know, dramatic license that you have to use. But you can write too cinematically, you know, you can write too theatrically and too too much like your characters are on stage and that can come through on the page and that can really hurt your script. Can you give me an example of that? I find that interesting because I've definitely seen that mm -hmm. in films where it doesn't feel real. Well, I would say two writers that do that a lot would be Aaron Sorkin and David Mamet, but that's their style and they've been around for years and they can get away with it, you know, and they write produced movies. So when we go see an Aaron Sorkin or David Mamet film, we know that that's the style of dialogue that they're going to employ. It's going to be a little bit more poetic, a little bit more about speeches, a little bit more, you know, stagey. Um, but we know that about their style. Any writers that have um, impeccable dialogue where you, you just feel like they're real people and you're in a restaurant overhearing someone at another table wow. have an interesting conversation? Um, that's a good question. I like, uh, I like Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, any, of the, any of the best screenplay winners of recent years, you know, they all have really great scripts. Um, I would say Diablo Cody sometimes can get a little bit too, too stylized or, or stagey, but in general, I think she has a really good, uh, really good voice. For her characters are very distinct, um, and it's just important to find an interesting way to express an idea, even if it's a simple idea. An example of that would be in uh, Pulp Fiction. There's a moment where Bruce Willis' character goes to buy some cigarettes, and he says to the bartender, "He says, one pack of red apples." And the bartender says, filters, and he says, none. <laughs> and that's just a really cool, fast, interesting exchange there, as opposed to five lines to explain what brand of cigarettes he wants. And, oh, you know what? How about no filters in those cigarettes, you know? Because it's very noirish feel. It's very, um, you know, clipped and dark and tight. And it's just filters, none. And that just gets the, the idea across. So if I'm a new writer and I'm calling you about a consultation, you know, what can I expect? Uh, what are some of the first few things you do with my script? Well, I'm going to read it definitely more than once. I'm going to read it two or three times. I'm going to give you very detailed page notes um, down to even things like um, line editing or suggesting that you cut this line. Um, I even, I'm, I'm obsessive about typos and spelling errors, so I'm probably also going to note those. 
um, but very detailed notes. And the main thing that I'm doing is I'm giving you my real-time reactions to your scripts and the questions in my head as I have them at the moment I have them. So I'm gonna take your PDF and I'm gonna embed notes in the exact moment where I had that question or that confusion, for example. Now, in some cases, I'll have a question like, um, why is this character talking? I thought he wasn't in the room, right? And then um, half a page later, that's explained. But I leave in the question because another reader might have that question. And you should know that there was a confusion at the top of that scene that it wasn't expressed correctly. You didn't show us that Joe Blow was in that scene. So when he started talking, it was confusing to me. So you should know that the next time you rewrite that scene, even though it's, if I was reading fast, uh, the answer to that question would be clear half a page down, but I, wanted, I want it to be clear now. You know, you don't want to confuse the reader. So these are gut reactions that it's important mm -hmm. that you write them down as you read it for the first time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it's important that you see, as the writer, you see what reactions a reader's gonna have in real time to your script. And then the next element is, um, is that follow-up meeting. You know, it's very important to have that dialogue, whether it's Skype or phone or in person, to where um, you can bounce ideas off me, ideas about rewriting and improving your script, you know, or even you have a new concept that you wanna, that you wanna workshop a little bit, and we'll talk about it. And it just really is a great way to get ideas out and to kind of field test ideas that one-on-one -on -one interaction. Is this PDF something that you're doing on your own away from the screenwriter or are they there in real time? No, I'm doing it on my own. Oh, so are. I'm acting as a reader. Um, they send me their material and then I read it on my own time. Right, yeah. okay. Now if they're coming in from scratch, like let's say they want to write a feature and all they have is an idea or two or they want to write a pilot and they only have an idea or two, um, that's going to be more of an ongoing coaching situation. So we might do what I call um, my eight-week story map masterclass. And I have a structured course with weekly lectures and assignments. And you get your lecture on Tuesday, and then your assignment is due on Monday. So it keeps you on track. It keeps you on schedule. You have those, those you know, core deadlines because you're probably like me. You probably procrastinate, and you really need that deadline. And I'm going to read your material every single week, no matter what your assignment is, whether it's a story map or whether it's 10 new pages of script, I'm gonna read it and I'm give you feedback and then we'll have a Skype and we'll discuss it. So you can develop something completely from scratch with my professional input. So it's a virtual class, but then you're meeting Skype face-to-face -face yeah. to go over things. Okay, yeah, and a lot of my clients are from all over the world. So um, it has to be primarily by email, but then the Skype is great. You know, we get to see each other and talk to each other. So when you give people notes, what are some of the common hiccups that they come back to you with, either to combat the note or to say, well, I agree, but maybe you missed what I was doing here? Well, I have one client who is really stubborn. <laughs> I will say that. Um, I can give her a note like I, this is on the same draft she's a coaching client so um we're going i'm coaching her through multiple drafts of something and she's really stubborn about taking certain notes and i will tell her like look this doesn't this isn't clear this doesn't make sense this line totally sticks out and the next draft she'll still have that line of dialogue in there 
and the next draft she'll still have it in there. Now, eventually she usually takes my note and usually trusts me, but she just has that stubborn thing where she wants to do it, you know, her way, the way she did it the first time. But writing is rewriting and, you know, some things may change, everything may change. And I'm not the final, uh, you know, I'm not the final judge of everything. I'm not representative of the entire industry. I'm just one guy. But it's important to be open to notes, you know, to consider them. Um, to talk about specific, like specific ways in which they disagree and try to fight for a note or something like that. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think that's pretty specific in terms of, you know, how they have trouble accepting a certain line of dialogue that doesn't belong because I think we see what we're going for and we think that everyone else is going to see it the same way. And mm -hmm. so uh, it is difficult for someone to have an outside perspective when we're very emotionally attached to one line or yeah. a way the story is going. So. It's tough and I know that, you know, because I write as well. It's tough to take critique. Um, I applaud anyone who is going to take my critique. Um, and take notes, but you have to have a thick skin and you have to be able to take it and decide if you want to use that note and rewrite it in a certain way that I'm suggesting. But I'm only one opinion. I tell this to my clients all the time. I'm one guy. I'm not representative of the whole industry or a sector of the industry. It's up to you if you want to accept or not accept a note that I give you. And it's okay if you don't, you know, it's your baby. At what point is someone ready for a consultation and at what point are they not? Well, they should have written, I would say, at least two drafts. You know, don't send me the absolute first draft version of your script. And I think it's if you feel like you're not sure if something is at the level of submission, you know that you want to submit it, you know that you want to send it to a contest or to a professional company, but you're not quite sure if it's at the right level yet, you know? And the flip side of that is maybe it is ready for submission. In that case, I will give you a free referral to somebody that I know in the business. I will pass your script on if it's already of that submission quality. But as you probably know, 99% of the time, it's not ready yet. And that's when I come in and I can really help a writer to really polish it up and get it to that level. What do you recommend to a writer that's too much of a perfectionist and on the flip side, one that's too loose and maybe a little sloppy? If you're too much of a perfectionist, you need to understand that you need to get it out the door at a certain point or drop that script and move on to another. A writer writes, they write more than one script. You can't obsess over the same script for years. I've done it, everybody does it. You know, if it's your baby and you want it to be perfect, it's good that you want to be super detail oriented and you want it to be of a high quality level and not have any typos or spelling errors and really blow away the reader. So it's going to take some time to write. It's going to take years for you to get the skills to write that great breakthrough script. But you have to get it out the door at some point or drop it and move on. So if you're planning to get it out the door, then you have to cut it off at some point and say, I'm going to submit this to a contest or a manager or a producer or whoever. And it's tough. It's tough to get it out the door because you're never sure if it's exactly ready, you know, but it's probably never going to be perfect. It's probably never going to be the exact submission ready level that that needs to be. 
Uh, it's just, it's subjective, you know, to the reader. So it's hard to say, okay, this is absolutely where you should cut it off and you should send it out the door. It's your choice and it's one of the toughest choices uh, for writers, you know, when do you submit? Dan, what about the writer that's too loose, too sloppy, doesn't totally check everything out? Oh, it's going to be fine. Because they're almost like two of the same. Two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where a consultant like me can really help, you know, can really tell you, okay, this is not a professional level quality. There, I was confused in, in places. Um, I uh, really felt like scenes went on way too long. I felt like these voices weren't authentic in dialogue. So I'm the kind of person, a writing coach, a story consultant, who can really help someone like that and really guide them to improve their craft. So both of those traits, perfectionist, loose, kind of non-detail oriented, uh, where does that stem from? Where, where does it stem from where you fall on the spectrum? Now I'm wondering how does someone become a perfectionist and how does somebody become kind of loose, you know, sort of... Kind of lazy, a lazy, lazy writer? I'm not even sure if it's lazy, but they, they don't seem to care as much about details because they think they mm -hmm. don't matter. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're willing to spend time on stuff that does matter, so they're not lazy in that respect, but in terms of tying up loose ends, they think, oh, they'll understand. You know, there's just some people that flow with certain things in one way and are more controlled in other ways. And where does that, where does that come from? Well, I think it comes from your personality. I think it comes from your own personal experience, how you approach creative work. But it is a craft and it's gonna take a long time to learn that craft and to really perfect it and to write your best work, to find your voice and write the best thing that you were born to write. That's gonna take time. And if you are really loose and what you might call lazy, just you're not detail-oriented, you're not specific, you don't care if, if a scene is confusing because it makes sense to you, well, that's going to be a problem because the reader cares, because the reader wants it to make sense and wants it to be tight and wants it to have a really great arc and surprise and subvert their expectations and wants it to just be great. So. If you are a really loose writer, then maybe screenwriting is not quite the, the discipline for you. Sure. Then the flip side of one that can't let it go because there's just too many variables that they've got to make sure are right, but then it, the life is squeezed out because it's so, it's so tight. Mm -hmm. It can become drier the more you pick at it and pick at it, you know? Um, I can't say specifically which draft, you know, does that happen like, okay, between draft 12 and 15, it's going to get way too dry and you're going to lose that original essence, you know. But there is that instance in which someone picks at something and picks at something, rewrites it so many times, takes every single note they get from every friend and every consultant and it ends up just kind of bleeding it dry and you lose the essence of the original idea, the original concept, you know, what made you passionate about that. So that's a, that's a pitfall too to look out for, you know. Dan, on your site, I think you have a beat sheet that you offer, it's like a PDF or? When people buy my book, I offer a worksheet, a story map worksheet that they can use to map out their own pilot, for example. 
Um, and what makes my book unique, uh, Story Maps TV Drama, the structure of the one-hour television pilot, is that it offers the first detailed beat sheet for television. There's been a lot of books about feature screenwriting which offer that paradigm, that kind of Sid Field paradigm. He's the one who really started it. And no one had yet done it for TV. And I kept getting clients asking me, well, do you have a story map for TV? And I went out there and looked and there wasn't one. So I decided to make one, but I decided to develop it from watching great pilots, great shows, and from reading produced pilots, even some that weren't, um, that didn't make it to series, you know, stuff that was going around Hollywood that I could get my hands on that had actually sold. So I developed this beat sheet. It's broken down into acts. It's broken down into page ranges. I give you examples of the page ranges of many pilots, like the Breaking Bad pilot, if you read the actual script. Uh, the teaser was two pages. Act one was eight pages. Act three was six pages, you know, just something hypothetically. And I break down where in those acts were those specific beats, things like the first trial or first casualty or the end of act one turn or the midpoint or the assumption of power. And I'm getting a lot of people saying that they love it for that reason, that this was the first time they found a beat sheet for television. So it's giving them a roadmap to write their script. It's giving them that chassis of the car to put their details inside. And I've started actually getting produced writers telling me that they're using it as well. I just had a producer um, from HBO Latino who lives in Mexico City uh, call me and say that they're using it now for their show that's in the fourth season on HBO Latino. Oh. And that was really cool. That was really exciting to hear, you know. So people are really using my beat sheet and my paradigm. Excellent. Can you share one or two other tips from the beat sheet? It's up to the writer how to break it down. You may do a teaser plus four act structure. You may do a teaser plus five act structure. Uh, if you're writing a 30 minute script, you may do four acts. You may do a teaser plus two acts. It really depends on you. The best way to know how you should structure your script and how you should break down the page ranges, you know, the timing basically of that script is to watch shows that are similar to yours. They tell the story in the same way that you're going to tell your TV series, okay? And so outline those shows as you watch them and see how they break up the acts. If it's a commercial-driven network, like a broadcast network that has commercials, a lot of those act breaks are going to correspond to commercial breaks, but not always, and not always in the script. So if you can get your hands on the actual screenplays for pilots, that's great as well. How could someone get that? Uh, there are, if you just do Google searches, you will find those. Um, there's a site named Tracking Board where they have a number of downloads. Um, for features, the uh, around Academy Award time, each, each studio has their Academy Award nominated scripts or you know, nominated for WGA awards and such. For awards consideration, you can download those PDFs. TV is a little bit harder to find, um, but they are out there. If you um, go to forum sites, maybe like the Blacklist site, for example, you will find people who will have these scripts and they can send you pilots. The beat sheet, is it just for the pilot or is it for the entire season? It's up to you. Um, that's actually a good question. Um, there's a difference between a premise pilot and a third episode pilot. A premise pilot is a pilot that takes 
the entire length of the script to set up and it's more of an origin story of that character. So we're starting more at the beginning. Like for example, if it was Scandal, we might, uh, if it was a premise pilot, we would start with uh, Olivia Pope like in law school or in college. And then we would follow her over the years to the point where she opened her own firm. Or maybe you would wait until the end of season one for her to open her own firm, okay? But what they actually do is a third episode pilot, which is the structure of the pilot uses the same structure that the, for example, third episode of the series would use. So it uses the same structure as every episode going forward. And that's your decision as a writer. But in the example of Scandal, she's already a, a Washington DC fixer. She's already really successful. She already owns her own company and she has her own team. She even knows the president at this point. So they started, they decided to start the series late in her life, you know, she's not that old, but late in her professional life to the point where she's already on the ground running and a seasoned professional. And that was a specific choice that Shonda Rhimes made for that series. You can use the beat sheet to structure your pilot very specifically. You can define the signpost beats, you can define the core elements that make your character and your series unique and you can plot them out in the act structure that you're going to use. And you should have a template show, uh, inspirational show that you're using that uses the same structure that you would like to use. So for example, if you're using a show that has a teaser plus five act structure on the beat sheet, it's broken down in teaser and five acts. So you will use that as an outline template to beat out your particular pilot. It's up to you if you feel that your series should use this same structure in ensuing episodes, or the pilot should stand on its own as a premise pilot, uh, as its own kind of, its own story that's not quite gonna use the same structure. Um, these days in the industry, they like more the third episode pilot where the pilot is written like subsequent episodes of the series, so that's kind of Thing that they like to see more because they know what it is. So they give you that question, well, what is this series? What are we gonna watch week to week? Well, you could say, well, the pilot is written in the same structure that each episode will be written in week to week. Formats, because you've mapped them out. There's the mail. The post-it, yeah, <laughs> rain, sleet, or snow. 